Okay, John chapter 2. Once you've found that, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter number 2. And we're going to read from verse 12 down through verse 17. The Bible says, In this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. We're going verse by verse to the Gospel of John this evening. We're going to look at the t- this title, It's Time to Purge Your Temple. It's time to purge your temple. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand the passage. Lord, every uh, angle of the passage we can cover tonight. Lord, uh, give us uh, it, it, just a, an understanding heart. And Lord, prick our consciences where there's things that are not in line with the Word of God. And Lord, help us to be people who are pure and right and holy before you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we know that Jesus, growing up in the family of Mary and Joseph, had grown up going to the temple. And we have the account in Luke chapter 2, when he was 12 years old, of his journeying to the temple. And no doubt, prior to his ministry beginning at age 30... He had been to the temple many, many, many times. He knew that the religious leaders of the Jews uh, were filled with hypocrites and that much of what went on in the temple did not please His Heavenly Father. Now, I, I want you to understand this leading into the story of Him purging the temple. Jesus did not just show up and see something that made Him angry and then act in a temperous rage. Jesus grew up going to the temple, seeing the events that were there from a child and full well knew what was going on when at age 30 he showed up in the temple here in John chapter 2. So uh, uh, what was the purpose of the temple? Well, the first one was dreamed up and designed by David. And then uh, God told David, we looked at it last year, God told David, you're not going to be allowed to build the temple, you're a man with bloody hands. You're a man of war, and I'm going to give Solomon peace on every side, and Solomon is going to build this uh, temple. It was built so that God could do what? He could dwell among the people. There was the outer courtyard, and then there was the holy place, and then there was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God Himself dwelt among His people. There in the holy place, they would bring in animal sacrifices. And those animal sacrifices, Hebrews tells us, was a shadow. It was a shadow pointing to uh, the, the Christ, the Messiah, who would one day come and be the ultimate sacrifice. Now, the temple was no longer, we get to here to John 2, and the temple was no longer a place where God was pleased. The temple had become polluted and defiled. In short, we need to understand that a temple, listen up here, a temple is a place where God resides. A temple is a place where God resides. Now, um, hold your place there in John 2 and turn over to 1 Corinthians 6, a famous passage, but all the same, um, indulge me and just turn over there if you would. There is no more physical temple. In fact, in AD 70, the Romans blew it up. Uh, every stone gone, and uh, it's never, it's not been rebuilt as of yet. Um, we look at the uh, end times, and we know it will be rebuilt again, but it's not been built. It's been destroyed. There is no more uh, physical temple building in Jerusalem, but there are temples. Listen up. There are temples that exist today. You listening? If you're saved. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you, and you are a walking temple. The temple has gone from being a physical building to being each Christian. You are a temple. You are a temple of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Paul is addressing this church who is just wildly out of control. 
And they've got a sexual lust issue running through the fabric of the culture of their church. I doubt it was every person. I doubt it was even most of them, but there were blind eyes being turned, some wicked fornication going on in the church, and Paul addresses it head on. Look at 19. What? Know ye not that your body... Read that next phrase with me. Ready? Is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. Your body is the temple. Your body is the temple. He goes on and says, ye have of God. Look here. Ye are not your own. You don't own the rights to your body anymore. The day you got saved, God took over the rights to your body. I'm talking about your physical body. Verse 20 says you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So I want you to take a moment this evening and look at the outside of your temple. I'm not talking about right now as it pertains to how you dress when you come to church. As all of us here tonight came in wearing clothes that would be appropriate in church. Look at the outside of your temple. Did you know that when Solomon's temple was built and then that second temple was built in the exodus from Babylon, that they spared no price? It was the most exuberant, expensive building that's probably ever been built. The outside of it was ostentatious and gaudy. Are you saying that... I am not saying that you should... Be ostentatious and gaudy in your dress. But what I am saying is that great care ought to be to the outside of your temple. The outside of your temple. What I am saying is that what the way you dress speaks to who owns you. People say, oh, pastors, they just harp on worldly clothing. And listen, I grew up in an era of preachers who said some very unkind, harsh things about the way people would dress. And it was shallow preaching. Can I say something tonight about the way we dress that is not shallow? The way you dress identifies you with something or someone. The way you dress either says, I'm a child of God or I'm a child of the world. If I go to a sports game and I look out on the field... I can tell who plays for which team based on the uniform they're wearing. When someone looks at you and you're walking through Walmart, whose team are you on? Are you on the Lord's team? Or are you on Satan's team? You see, the way we dress, it speaks volumes of the way our temple... It speaks volumes about our temple. How do you walk? Where do you walk? How do you present yourself? How do you speak? I, I have seen an uptick in cursing among Christians in the last ten years. Folks, what's wrong with us? It's not okay to curse. It's a sin to curse. Ephesians 4.29 is in the Bible now just like it was a hundred years ago. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Now I'm going to give you a little uh, secret here about how I stay away from cursing. And this is my standard. I'm not saying it has to be your standard, but it is my standard. If you think it would help you, then adopt it. If not, then fine. I, I, I know what I need to do to not curse. For me not to curse, I have to stay away from slang words. Slang words are words that are substitute for curse words. You see, if I stay away from slang words and then I slip... I get upset and I slip, I'm going to use a slang word, I'm not going to use a curse word. But if I'm always using slang words all the time, boy, when I get really upset, you know what's going to come stumbling out of my mouth? We need to guard our mouth. And by the way, it's not just cursing, it's complaining, it's, uh, it's gossiping. It's not just what we say, it's what we text. It's what we post on social media. How's the outside of your temple look? How about the inside of your temple? 
if the Pharisees were guilty of anything, it was having the outside done up all nice, with the inside being, oh, dead men's bones, Jesus said. Filthy and corrupt. If they were a goblet, the goblet was shiny and gold, golden. The inside was caked in mud and filth. And they held it up high where no one could see the inside and everyone would be enamored with the outside. If we could get in an elevator and take a ride down inside your heart, what would we find? Can I tell you in part what you'd find in my heart? You'd find a battle with pride. Because I battle pride. I battle it every day of my life. I don't always win the battle with pride. Somebody says something I don't like and sometimes I get upset. Someone cuts me off in traffic and sometimes I get upset. Someone uh, uh, looks at me a certain way or doesn't respect me the way I want to be respected. And sometimes I get all worked up over that. You know what that is down inside? That's my pride. It's my pride. We climb down and, and we get in an elevator and we climb down into your heart. Uh, what would we find? Uh, would we find uh, lust? Would we find um, the filth of the world that you devour from uh, the television? We looked at a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night how that what we look at with our eyes and what we listen to with our ears filters down into our heart and is either cleaning us or corrupting us. It is not the, uh, it is not the Spirit, if the Spirit of God is not in charge, then your pride is in charge. And I would say this evening that a great prayer to pray on a regular basis is, Lord, kick me and my pride off the throne of my heart, and Spirit of God, you sit on the throne of my heart, and you tell me what to do, and you lead the way. Because if your pride is in charge, the Spirit of God is not. And if the Spirit of God is in charge, then your pride has been put down and subdued. How about your thought life? You see, a Christian with a purged temple has the mind, listen closely, has both the mind and mentalities of the Lord Jesus Christ. Has the mind and the mentalities of the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you, I look at our world today and I see a bunch of people that have just broken mentalities. I see boys that have been so emasculated and girls that have been so emasculated. I traveled to Indiana this week for uh, the funeral and I flew um, out of LaGuardia out to uh, O'Hare Airport and then from O'Hare back. And you know, when you go to an airport, you see a lot of people. You see a lot of people. And... Um, um, my wife said to me as I was getting ready to leave Thursday, why are you dressed up so nice? And I said, because I, I don't want to uh, lose an opportunity to witness somebody on the plane. If God gives me that chance. I don't want to be dressed you know, down so much that that would hinder my chance to witness. And I did not get an opportunity to witness on the plane. Now people have cell phones and earbuds and they are antisocial. So you get on the plane and no, I mean, they just zone out like you don't exist for the three hours you're sitting next to them. And I keep looking over and looking for an opportunity Nope, they want nothing to do with it. So that was that, and the same thing on the way back. But I look at people and I see mentalities that are just broken. Mentalities that are broken. And um, uh, I would love to be able to, um, you know, plug you into some sort of Bible computer and dial up the right code and change the way you think. But you know what? I can't do that. And you know what? You can't necessarily do that directly, but you can do it slowly by getting in the Bible and letting Jesus change your heart and mind. You have to make a choice to purge your thought life. Not only the sinful thoughts out, but the mind of Christ becoming part of you and the mentalities of Christ becoming part of you. A Christian with a purged temple thinks like Christ and behaves like Christ. Now, greed and corruption back in John 2 had taken over the temple in Jesus' day. And as He began His earthly ministry, He was going to step up and He was going to do something about it. I believe that God's people should regularly cleanse and purify both the outside and inside of the temple. Go through, take inventory, throw out those things, kick out those things on both the outside and inside of our temple that do not please God. Jesus hates it 
hates when we defile uh, the place where God's Spirit resides. Why? Because God the Spirit is worthy of our holiness and us giving Him a place to reside that is holy. So let's look at three thoughts this evening as we consider this title. It's time to clean up our temple. First look at verse 12 and we'll see the steps that Jesus took from the wedding at Cana and then on his way to Jerusalem in the Passover. So he leaves Cana of Galilee in verse 12. It says, And this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. So out the wedding, Jesus and his brothers and, and, um, uh, and his mother and these six disciples up to this point that he's called are with him. And he goes to Capernaum. Now why did he go to Capernaum? Because he couldn't go back to Nazareth. Uh, he had been rejected in Nazareth. He had said that a prophet is without honor, saving his own country. And so he made Capernaum, which was a hub city, he made Capernaum his headquarters for his ministry for the next three and a half years. And so he makes a stop in Capernaum. The Passover is coming, and as was his custom, he then traveled down to Jerusalem. Number one, we see the temple's corruption. The temple's corruption. For us to better understand why Jesus drove out the cattle, we must understand the Jewish practices of temple worship. So, a little history lesson in letter A, and that will help us as we finish out the message here. So, notice letter A, the practice of animal sacrifice. The practice of animal sacrifice. Look with me at verse 13 and 14 of John 2. The Bible says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. So why is it that they were selling these animals? Take your Bibles over to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12. Why is it they were selling these animals? Because Jesus would come from, rather Jews would come from all over the world in order to participate in the practice of animal sacrifice as they remembered the event of the death angel passing over the Passover, passing over the homes that had been applied to the doorpost. You may remember Moses had gone back into Egypt and he was getting ready to lead the Israelites away from Egypt. And uh, uh, nine plagues had taken place and God said to Moses, he said, get ready, I'm going to send one final plague and Pharaoh will expel you uh, permanently out of the land. land. Look at Exodus 12 and verse 5 and we see the instructions given by God to Moses and Moses to the people of this Passover event. Look at verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the house wherein they shall eat it. So they were to take a lamb without blemish, they were to shed its blood, uh, they were to take that blood in a bowl or basin, they were to take hyssop, and they were to wipe that on the top doorpost and then on the side door, side doorpost, that being a picture of the cross where Jesus would shed his blood. And the death angel was going to come through. And if you had the blood on the doorpost, the firstborn in your house would be spared. But if the blood was not applied, the death angel would come in and would kill that uh, firstborn, both man and animal. And so the Jews uh, corporately did put the blood on the doorpost. The Egyptians corporately did not do it. And the death angel came and killed a whole bunch of firstborn children, including Pharaoh's child, which caused them to be kicked out of the land. Pharaoh finally let the Israelites from their bondage and sent them out. And so uh, we see here this celebration of the Passover, all of these years later, they're still uh, sacrificing animals just as they did on that first Passover. But when did animal sacrifice begin? I want you to show you how vital this is to the Jewish culture, really even to uh, worshiping God. Turn back to Genesis 4. Genesis 4 in verse number 3. This began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned and uh, they uh, ate of the fruit, and God said to them, uh, 
you're going to be kicked out of the garden for your sin. And he took an animal and um, he killed it and he uh, uh, made that first offering and he took the, the skin of the animal and he turned it into clothing for Adam and Eve. And then in Genesis 4, we find the first man and woman with their first two children and look at Genesis 4. Their two children are now grown to adulthood and they have been well trained in animal sacrifice. Look at verse 3. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to the offering. I would ask this question, when and how did Abel learn how to do this sacrifice? I believe God directly taught Adam and Eve how to do it. And then Adam and Eve directly taught Cain and Abel how to do it. This idea of performing an animal sacrifice, this was not just some Jewish tradition that was invented along the way. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and their first two children. They were trained how to do an animal sacrifice. But why an animal sacrifice? Hebrews chapter 9 gives us the answer. Verse 22 says, And almost all things are by the law purged with Blood, with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Now, understand that the reason why the blood had to be shed is without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness. We know uh, from uh, Abel, when his blood was shed, God confronted Cain. And uh, uh, the Bible says that God told Cain, the blood of thy brother crieth out from the ground. And then we know uh, that the martyrs in Revelation, they stand on the shores of heaven and their blood cries out for vengeance. And we know here from the book of Hebrews that the blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness. Blood has a voice and by the shedding of blood, sins could be forgiven yet for a time. Now understand that the blood of these animals that were being shed uh, year after year after year, they were solely symbolic arrows uh, pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus whose blood would be shed for the remission of all sins throughout all time. So inside of the temple, there was a giant altar where animal sacrifices would take place for this symbolic remission of sins. One thing I want to say here is that when we take the Lord's Supper here at White Oak Baptist Church and we drink down the grape juice and we eat those little wafers, listen, that grape juice does not wash away a single sin. It is symbolic of the blood of Jesus that washed away our sin. And the blood of these animals that was shed here in the Old Testament, uh, or even here in John 2, those animals, the blood of those animals did not wash away their sins, but were symbolic to Jesus who had washed away, uh, 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 wash away sins. Now, the Lord's Supper points back to the cross. The animal sacrifice pointed uh, toward the cross, but both are slash were symbolic. So we see the practice of animal sacrifice. We're getting up to the part why this was a problem. Letter B, we see the purpose of the temple courtyard. The purpose of the temple courtyard. Now, when Jesus shows up to Jerusalem here in John 2, they are using the courtyard to sell these animals. I'm going to show you why that was such a problem. All right? Turn over to Second Chronicles chapter 6. Second Chronicles chapter number 6. Here we find here we find Solomon dedicating the very first temple that had been built. If you will, they were having a sort of ribbon cutting ceremony, and this was the first time this temple would be opened and used. Second Chronicles 6, Solomon prays a long, lengthy, very lengthy prayer. And in verse 32, we find this. Look here. Moreover, concerning the stranger, which is not of thy people Israel, but is come from a far country. So these are Gentiles. For thy great namesake, and thy mighty hand, and thy stretched out arm, if they come and pray in this house, then hear thou from the heavens, even from thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all people of the earth may know thy name and fear thee, as doth thy people Israel, and may know that this house which I have built is called by thy name. Now, 
uh, they were invited to come to the temple and call out to the Lord. Now, there's one caveat here. Gentiles were not allowed to enter into the temple building. They were allowed into the courtyard. They were not allowed inside the temple. So then, by deduction, where then would they pray to the God of heaven? They would do it from the courtyard. That was the only place Gentiles were allowed while on the temple property. Now, Revelation chapter 11, verse 2, gives us even more detail about this courtyard. It says this, But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. We're not going to get into the prophecy of, of Revelation 11. What I want to say tonight is that the courtyard had been given to the Gentiles, and we look back to Solomon, it was given to the Gentiles for the purpose of prayer. Gentiles were to be able to come to the courtyard and pray. Now, the second time Jesus is going to purge uh, the temple, He says to them this, not in the John 2, but later on, He says to them, Ye have turned my house of prayer into what? A den of thieves. You turned my house of prayer into a den of thieves. The courtyard was to be a place of prayer. So the purpose of the temple courtyard was not to sell livestock for animal sacrifice. The purpose of the temple courtyard was to give the Gentiles a place to pray. So letter C, we see the problem with their setup. The problem with their setup. Go back to John chapter 2. When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem for his first Passover, during his public ministry, he did not like what he saw. What exactly was it he didn't like? Look at John 2 and look at verse 15. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. Look here, and poured out the changers' money. So imagine, I want to really set the stage for you here, because this is the culmination of point number one. I want you to imagine that you are a Jewish family, and you have to make an eight or nine day trip from your city to get to Jerusalem. Remember, they didn't have planes and trains and cars, and they had to walk, all right? And so you had to either come with an animal from your farm and walk those animal, that animal or animals with you, or you could leave your animals at home and walk to Jerusalem and buy your animals in Jerusalem and then walk them into the temple. Now, one thing I have learned and that merchandisers have learned is that convenience sells. Convenience sells. I'm going to tell you the first time I realized this all by myself. I was 16 years old and there was a gas station right down the road from my house. And I loved to drink soda. And I walked into that gas station and I noticed that the two liter bottles were 99 cents, but they were warm. And the 20 ounce bottles were $2.99 because they were cold. Convenience sells. How many of you know? How many of you figured this out? Convenience sells. So you show up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And you know what? People want to make money. Alright? And so they bring their livestock and vendors set up shop all around the outskirts of Jerusalem. So you can buy your animal and you can carry that right in there. Well, what is more convenient than buying your animal in the courtyard of the temple? Where then you only have to walk it a few feet inside for that sacrifice to happen. Now, can I tell you what I think was going on here? I'm almost certain this was going on. I am reading between the lines just a smidgen. But if I get to heaven and find out that this is not true, I will be shocked. Here's what I think was happening. I think the Jewish rulers, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, I think that they were setting up vendor spots in the courtyard and charging money to people in order to sell cattle right there. Have you ever gone to the Big E? Have you ever seen how expensive it is to get a spot at the Big E to sell your product? 
the closer you made it to the temple, the more likely it is you could sell for a premium price. And man, those Jewish rulers, they were making bank. They were making buck off of this uh, vendor setup they had right there in the temple courtyard. So who was getting rich off of this? Well, the, the Jewish leaders were getting rich. The vendors were getting rich. And if that wasn't enough, people, Jews were coming from other countries with money in their pocket. And then the temple had their own money system. And so there were money changers who were exchanging money and obviously marking it up. And the money changers were getting rich. And this time of Passover had just become a very large money-making scheme for everybody involved. The Lord was not happy with that. Matthew 6.24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Jesus said this, and think about this to the religious leaders of the country, you cannot serve God and man. You can't do it. You cannot serve God and man. Let's be clear, the Jewish leaders hated Jesus because he was a threat to their religious empire, which meant he was a threat to their money. Their religious system had made them rich. And if Jesus threatened their power and money, uh, then they would need to destroy him. I often, sometimes I look at people's behavior and it makes no sense and it's just bizarre on every level, and I'm like, why are they behaving that way? Why are they doing that? This makes no sense. And I realized a long time ago that when that's the case, if you pull back the curtain, probably there's money involved that's pushing their buttons and causing their decision making. Why do you think God had Paul challenge Timothy and all pastors to be careful when it came to money? Paul told Timothy about all bishops or pastors in chapter 3, verse 2, 1 Timothy, a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, look here, of good behavior, of good behavior, it means behave yourself, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, not greedy of filthy lucre. He's not looking to grease his pocket. He's not in it to get rich. He's not in it to find out how much money he can make. That's not the purpose. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is what, church? It's the root of all evil. I have learned not to use the words all or never. But when God uses the words all or never, He means it. All evil comes from the love of money. All of it. All of it. Why were they, why was Christ so upset when he walked in and saw that? Because they had taken a place that was supposed to be for worship and had turned it into merchandise. And the temple had become corrupted. Now, here's the application before we get into point two. Our temple as well can become corrupted over the love of money. And one question I have to ask myself all the time, and I mean on a regular basis, is, Richard, do you love money more than you love God? Do you love money at all? Because God says you can't love money and love God. You have to love one and hate the other. I think sometimes we're too motivated by money. That ends up causing us to do some things that corrupt our temple. The temple's corruption. Number two, notice the temple's cleansing. The temple's cleansing. Alright, you want to see... You Bible students, you want to see something really neat? Take, take your Bibles over to Malachi 3. If you don't know where Malachi is, go to Matthew you're in Matthew. You turn back one book into the Old Testament. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 3. It is amazing to see that God, through His prophet, told us exactly what the Messiah would do. The purging of the temple was foretold 300 years prior to its happening. 
330 years, all right? 300 years prior to its happening, uh, Malachi told us that the Messiah would purge the temple. Now, I don't believe for a moment Jesus was angry when he purged the temple. I think he knew when he arrived what he was going to do. I'm going to show you why I believe this uh, even more in the verses in just a moment. But listen, Jesus knew the Scriptures. He was the Scriptures. Uh, Jesus knew this was written when he was in heaven when Malachi wrote it. Jesus told Malachi to write it. Then he came to earth, and at some point, very at a very young age, he realized he was the Messiah. He knew Malachi 3 was there. And look at verse 1. This is amazing. Behold, I will send my... Speaking of John the Baptist, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them. Here's the purging of the temple as gold and silver. That they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. That uh, Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and the against the adulterers against false swears and against those that oppress the hireling in the wages the widow and the fatherless and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me saith the Lord of hosts for I am the Lord I change not therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed so uh, you can see here, John the Baptist prepares the way. Jesus comes to the temple in this passage. The Messiah comes to the temple and cleans house. Quickly, three observations on this cleansing. Notice letter A, Christ's discretion. Notice His discretion. Look at verse number 15 of John chapter number 2 with me. Look down there. And when He had made a scourge of small cords, He drove them out of the temple. And the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Um, I don't think Jesus was angry when he did this. I don't believe that, alright? I believe that this was very, very premeditated. Again, he grew up watching this take place. He knew on his way from Capernaum to Jerusalem, um, uh, he knew what was going to be going on when he got there. And then it even tells us that he took the time to make a scourge of small cords before acting. He knew of Malachi 3 and his need to fulfill this prophecy. Now, look here. He used the scourge of small cords to drive away the sheep and oxen. Where did he get the scourge of small cords? Now, um, I believe that the people who brought the cattle into the courtyard would have used a scourge of cords to move the cattle along and get them in place, and then uh, pieces would have fallen off, or they would have discarded these whips when they were done. Jesus went along, and He gathered up enough of them, and He put them together, and He used them not to drive out the sellers, but to drive away the cattle. Now watch this. As you're driving away the cattle, guess who's going to go after the cattle? The people who own it. He didn't go after the people, he went after the cattle, and the people who owned the cattle, they left the courtyard. And then, notice there, that he walked over and he dumped over the money from the money changers. I see him walking over and taking the leg of the table and just flipping it upside down. Maybe taking a bag of money and just doing this right here, on the ground. And you know what these people are doing? They're scrambling and they're picking up their money. Now notice that he did not run over and shoo away the doves. He walked over and he said, look back at verse 16. It does not say that he yelled at them. It says, verse 16, and said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence. Take these things hence. There was no yelling, but rather he spoke to them. He did not release the doves in the air out of a fit of rage. Rather, he told the men in charge to take them and leave. Someone who is angry, guess what they don't have? They don't have discretion. Right? 
They take the cords and they just go and they're just whipping them everywhere, hitting people in the head, hitting people in the back, hitting people in the legs, flipping tables over, running cattle off, shooting all the doves in the air. No, he used the cord to drive away the cattle because that's how you move cattle along. He dumped the money over and he told the men with the doves to leave. He said to the men of the doves, uh, with the doves to leave. So his discretion, his discretion. Look at uh, letter B. Notice Christ's devotion. Now, if uh, you don't get anything else out of the message tonight, I really hope you hear what I'm about to say. Look at verse 16. And said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence. Read the rest of the verse with me. Make not my father's house an house of merchandise. You know what he did? He took a stand for his father publicly. Publicly. He walked in and he saw his father's temple had been corrupted and he was so devoted to his father that he was willing to put himself out there publicly. Publicly. He went and he drove all of these people out of the courtyard because of the devotion he had for his father. He was willing to make enemies with the people in front of him because of his devotion to his father. He had walked with God. He had spent time with God. He loved his father and he saw that his father was not pleased. And so in essence, he was not pleased. Where did his loyalty lie? It did not lie, listen up, it did not lie in social acceptance. It lied in heaven's acceptance. He took a stand for his father publicly. Notice he also took a stand for his father individually. You know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't go build a coalition of people and uh, come in uh, with, you know, 15 people and surround those in the courtyard and run them off. He didn't do that. Oh no. He didn't even say to his disciples that were with him, hey guys, we're going to go in there and we're going to intimidate these guys and we're going to run them off. No, no, no. He let his disciples stay off by the side and he went at it alone. You know why Jesus didn't come to earth to be a revolutionary? He came to earth to be our Savior. But all the same, he saw what was wrong and he took a stand all by himself. Do you know that the hardest thing to do is to take a stand all by yourself. That's the hardest thing to do. It is hard to step up to someone who's doing wrong and put your finger in their chest, if not directly, metaphorically, and say, you know what, you probably shouldn't do that. You know what, I really appreciate it. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I really appreciate it if you'd be careful the way you talk about my God in my presence. I really would appreciate it if you'd knock that stuff off. Took a stand individually. Now, why is this impressive? Because, watch this, Jesus was still largely unknown. Now remember, okay? He had only miracle He had performed was turning the water into wine and only a handful of people at that wedding even knew He had done it. Jesus did not come into Jerusalem having some uh, big uh, a presence. Listen, no one even really knew who he was yet. He had not met with Nicodemus. He had not met the water a woman by the, the well. He had not uh, healed a man by the pool of Bethesda. All of those things were yet to come. No one really even knew who he was. Yet he walked in being an anonymous individual and he, he drove away the cattle. He flipped over the money changers and he took a stand for the Father. He did not do it with some name or with some notoriety or with some uh, power presence, He did it solely because of His devotion to the Father. Now, how do you take a stand for God publicly and individually? I'm going to tell you how. Here's how you do it. You have to walk with Him privately. You have to walk with Him privately. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Can you turn over there, please? Mark chapter 1. I guess it was probably my Bible college years. I was doing devotions and the Lord spoke to me out of this verse and just really grabbed hold of me. And I was under such conviction from my lack of a 
a private prayer life and devotional life. I had had one in the past, but at that moment in my life, I'd gone months without really walking with God. And, and the Lord really spoke to me out of this verse. Look at Mark 1, verse 35. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. Rising up a great while before day, before the sun had even come up, Jesus got up and he made his way to a very quiet place. And there he spent time with his Father. He prayed. What gave Jesus the boldness and courage to take a stand in the temple courtyard against the entire religious sect and all of the merchandisers? He was, he was so devoted to His Father that even though He did not yet have a name, and even though He did not have some great coalition, He publicly and individually took a stand for what was right. I look at Christians today and I wonder how truly devoted we are to our God. I wonder how loyal we are to our God. Let me uh, illustrate it this way and I'll move on to letter C and then we'll, we'll get through the message here. If you were standing around the corner and I did not know you were there and two people were bad-mouthing you, and let's say that I did not join in. But I also didn't speak up and defend your honor. Would that hurt your feelings? Don't you think that God is worthy of us speaking up on His behalf? I'm not saying you need to be mean. But I am saying we need to take a, a loyal stand for God. Oh, sometimes we get so desensitized to people that we let evil fly and we say or do very little. Some of you here tonight may need to take a stand at home. Because you've got some things in your home that are not pleasing to the Lord. Amen. Hey, we're talking about purging the temple if you've got a home full of believers and you've got, you got video games in your home that are sinful and you've got movies in your home that are sinful and music plays in your home that are sinful and you've got dress code uh, things in your home that are sinful, some of you need to take a stand for what's right and you need to not angrily and not with a, a nasty spirit, but you need to take a stand for the Lord and you need to purge the temple of your home. That comes much easier when we have a deep, deep, deep love from God because we walk with Him. And religion is not just something we do. God is who we are because we walk with Him so closely and intimately. It becomes easy to take a stand for what's right when you're madly in love with God and you're loyal to Him. It becomes difficult to do when deep down inside, you're not really that close to your Lord. Letter C, we see Christ's disciples. Christ's disciples. We see His discretion, we see His devotion. Let's look at His disciples. Look at verse 17. And His disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Back in chapter 1, John the Baptist introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God would, that would take away the sin of the world. Here Jesus is not acting like an innocent little quiet lamb. He's acting like a conquering king. He's driving the cattle out. He's flipping over tables with the money changers. He's pushing people away uh, that have the doves. He's running the merchandisers off. And um, uh, uh, Jesus is the conquering king. And uh, they may have been uh, taken aback because this meek servant is not acting so meek at the moment. He's coming on strong. But then they remembered the Scriptures. Psalm 69.9, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. Now notice that they came to understand the purpose of Christ's life through their knowledge of the Scripture. Oftentimes, we miss out on understanding something 
that God has planned for our lives because we don't know the Scriptures. We don't know the Scriptures. How much Scripture do you know? I can't tell you how many times it's happened to me, even over the last uh, six months to a year, where something in front of me I've seen and I've known that's not right. And immediately the Spirit of God brings a Bible verse to mind that I memorized years ago. And based on my knowledge of the Bible, I can rightly divide right and wrong in front of me. But we err because we don't know the Scriptures. And we can't proceed forward with clarity because we don't know our Bible. I just want to speak directly to you tonight. I've heard so many Christians say, Pastor, I tried reading my Bible, but I just don't understand it, so I gave up. If I had, Pastor Andrew, if I had a dollar for every time someone said that, I could probably retire. <laughs> I mean that. Or maybe if I had $100 every time somebody said that, I could retire. Um, let's be honest tonight. Have you ever felt that way? You just didn't really quite understand the Bible? Can I tell you, you just got to keep on reading it. You can't give up. You just can't give up. Because the more you get to know that Bible, and the more you read it, the better you understand it, and the deeper you grasp it. Look, if my children had said when they were babies, you know what, Dad, I tried eating with a fork, and um, I just couldn't figure it out, so I just, I'm not going to eat anymore. You know what, they'd be dead now. You know what, it takes years to master how to take a fork and cut a piece of meat and put that in your mouth and properly chew it and digest it. You've got to have teeth that grow and come in and uh, you've got to learn how to... Uh, I remember I just had this visual of my brother James, our missionary to Honduras, when he was a little guy, he was probably three years old. He had the spaghetti bowl on top of his head. He had enough spaghetti sauce on his face to look like a clown and he had spaghetti on the wall and on his tray and on the floor. He was just having a great time. And you know what? You know what? He didn't know how to eat spaghetti. He probably got 5% of the spaghetti inside his system. He was having a blast. You may not totally know how to digest the Word of God, but just have fun reading your Bible and growing in the Lord. And in time, what's going to happen is you're going to learn how to eat that whole plate of spaghetti and not even get a red dot on your white shirt. You learn how to walk with God. And the Word of God begins to reside in your heart. And then when something happens, the Word of God helps you to see right from wrong. Hey, I want to ask you tonight, do you memorize the Bible? Are you actively... Oh, man, Pastor, move on, please. Oh, Pastor, stop, come on. Do you actively memorize the Bible? We're going to cleanse the inside... Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Number three, lastly, notice Christ's claim. Christ's claim. Let's move through these quickly. Letter A, notice it was radical. Look at John 2, verse number 18. The Bible says, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus was asked by the Jewish leaders for some kind of sign. Here they come, pouring out of the temple. He's ran off the vendors, their, their, their cash cow, their, their money maker. He's running them off, and uh, they know they're wrong, and, and, and He knows they're wrong. And so, instead of rebuking Him, they say, Give us a sign that you are of validity to do this. And He says, Destroy this temple in three days. And I will raise or destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So this was a double prophecy. Uh, they would destroy his temple by killing him just three years later, and it was a prophecy because the very building would also be destroyed about seventy years later. So it was a radical claim: destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Letter B: It was a ridiculed claim. It was a ridiculed claim. Look at John chapter 2, verse 20. Then said the Jews, the religious leaders, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? You can hear them scoffing and laughing and mocking uh, uh, Him. This was... 
flat out offensive to them. In fact, this would come up later when he would be crucified that he had made this claim. They loved their temple and they found it to be a, to be sacrilege that someone would speak of it being destroyed, much less a claim that a building that took 46 years to construct could be raised back up in three days. But Jesus was not speaking of a building. He was speaking of his body. He was prophesying his resurrection. Letter C, we see it was remembered. It was remembered. Look at John 2. Look at verse number 21. But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Let's finish out the message tonight in First Thessalonians 4. Turn over with me. We're going to look at the first eight verses of 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going to make just a couple of brief comments and then we'll, we'll shut it down tonight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and look with me at verse number 1. Again, remembering that we're talking about the cleansing, the purifying of our personal temple. Uh, some things need to go because this is a place where the Spirit of God resides. And we need to have a vessel that is fit for God, uh, wherein He can dwell. Look at verse 1. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. We talked about the maturing this morning, did we not? The being perfect is a process of maturity that ye abound. There's this growth more and more toward that phase two of completion. Verse two, for ye know what commandment we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. That means your cleansing, that purifying, that being made into the image of Christ. How do we do that? That ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to, and if you don't have this marked in your Bible, underline verse 4, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, that's your body, in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence or, or vile wickedness, even as the Gentiles culturally, which knew not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness. God hath not called us unto uncleanness. Hey, what we watch on TV matters. God hath not called us under uncleanness. How we dress the outside of our body matters. God has not called us unto uncleanness. How we speak to other people, even when the pastor's not looking over our shoulder, that matters. God has not called us unto uncleanness, but rather, verse 7, unto holiness. There ought to be a holiness about the way we live. Verse 8, we're the temple. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man. You're not offending a man, but God, who hath also given unto us His Holy Spirit. The message this morning and this evening really are tied together. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That, that maturity that leads to that completion as Abraham found. And then one day when we step on the shores of heaven, we will be without sin. We'll be sinless. Listen, there needs to be a regular cleansing of the temple. Alright, how many of you here uh, in the spring, you do a spring cleaning of your house? Alright, the rest of you need to do it. Okay? Amen. Alright. Um, you need to do a regular cleaning of the temple, of your body. You're walking through Walmart or Target or wherever you shop. Someone sees you. Do they think to themselves, hmm, he's peculiar. She's different. Someone gets in your car. Well, turn off that Christian music. We can't have them hearing that. They don't shut off their Taylor Swift, do they? Why are you shutting off your Christian music? Pastor gets in your car and you shut off your music too, don't you? <laughs> Quickly change the channel. Hi. We need 
we need to possess our vessel with honor. We need to walk away from uncleanness and walk toward holiness. Lord, tonight I pray you take this simple message out of John 2. Help us to evaluate our hearts. Lord, help us to be people who are holy. Not to impress man, but Lord, to please You. Help us not to be guilty of cleaning up the outside while we leave the inside defiled. Lord, help us to focus on the inside, knowing that if the inside of the vessel is clean, the outside will become clean. Help us to walk with You. Help us to walk worthy. Help us to walk away from uncleanness. Help us to abound more and more and more and more in holiness. Lord, grow us and help us and guide us in Jesus' name.